we've all heard of the famous story of the sinking of the Titanic. But if you really think about it, it's not just one story, but so many stories all at once. It is a story of strength and courage, as with the likes of Margaret Brown stepping in to help passengers in need. It is a story of luck and guile, like with Arthur John Priest, a man who not only survived the Titanic, but also three other tragedies at sea. It is a story of perseverance and intrigue, as with Violet Jessup, a stewardess who had also survived three shipwrecks and then continued to serve for 30 more years after that. These are the stories of their personal journeys. When the RMS Titanic set sail from England on April 10, 1912, it was the largest ship ever built at its time. It was 883 feet long and 175 feet tall, and it took 3,000 workers 26 months to build it. Considered to be the pinnacle of nautical engineering, this ship was touted by its makers to be unsinkable. Of course, four days after its maiden voyage at sea, that claim would be proven false. On April 14th, the Titanic hit the iceberg. The collision ruptured the hull, and the 16 supposedly watertight compartments designed to keep the ship afloat quickly flooded with water. It took the liner two hours and 40 minutes to sink. And of the 2,240 passengers and crew on board, only 706 survived. One of those survivors was Margaret Brown. She was a philanthropist, an actress, who had traveled to Europe to visit her daughter in Paris. However, when Brown got word that a grandchild had fallen ill back in America, she bought a ticket for the next available ocean liner that would take her home, which just so happened to be the Titanic. As a wealthy woman, whose husband had become rich after finding gold in one of the mines that he owned, Brown was able to get first-class accommodations on the vessel. For over four days, she enjoyed many of the luxuries that came with her ticket. There were the expected services, like a large dining room with a live orchestra. But the vessel also was equipped with a gym, squash courts, and a swimming pool. And she'd spend her time in the first-class lounge that had been designed in the architectural style of the Palace of Versailles. When the Titanic started to sink, Brown could have jumped into the first available lifeboat and made her way to safety. But she did not. Instead, she joined the relief efforts and helped others get out, putting her own life at risk. In fact, by some accounts, a crew member had to physically pick her up and drop her into a lifeboat, number six, in order to get her off the ship. With all the confusion and fear around, Brown went on to take control of the lifeboat. She even got the women on board to help paddle, knowing that it would help them keep warm in the cold night's air. There were also reports that she had an argument with the crewman who was in charge of that particular boat. When she suggested that they paddle toward the ship to help save others, quartermaster Robert Hitchens refused, claiming that when the massive Titanic would finally go under, their tiny lifeboat would be pulled down with it if they were too close. An hour and 20 minutes after the Titanic sank, the survivors were finally rescued by the RMS Carpathia. Even then, Brown was still hard at work, now ensuring that passengers from the second and third classes were provided with basic necessities such as food and blankets. Initially dubbed the heroine of the Titanic, she would later be nicknamed the unsinkable Molly Brown. A bit of an odd nickname, considering that she was never called Molly in her normal life. However, her story was so compelling that it was eventually turned into a musical in 1960 and into a movie in 1964. 
and her character would continue to pop up in several other films about the tragedy. There was also another person on board, who was also later declared unsinkable, though his series of events that led to him earning this title are far more tragic. His real name was Arthur John Priest. He worked as a stoker and fireman. This meant that he spent most of his time below deck, helping shovel coal into the furnaces that created the steam needed to keep the ship moving. It was a dirty, sweaty job, but it was also a big responsibility, as stokers had to ensure the furnaces did not overheat or set fire to the whole ship. Priest was one of the 163 stokers hired to work on the Titanic for his first big trip. He helped shovel the 600 tons of coal the engines needed each day. When the ship hit the iceberg, Priest was relaxing in the bunker he shared with his co-workers, not far from his workstation. Escape was difficult, and his chances of survival were low. He had to move fast, running through corridors and uh, along gangplanks, as he made a desperate dash onto the deck. And once there, he had only one option left, to jump into the frigid Atlantic Ocean. Imagine the shock of being enveloped by 27-degree water, surrounded by panicked screams and the darkness of the night. Despite all this, Priest swam, and swam, and remarkably, with frostbite setting in, he found safety on a lifeboat. He was one of only 44 stokers to survive. As if that wasn't enough, Priest would go on to survive three other sinking ship disasters, including the HMS Alcantara in 1916, the Titanic sister ship the Britannic, also in 1916, and then the Donegal in 1917. It was for this miraculous record that he was later known as the unsinkable stoker. After the Donegal, Priest finally retired from working on ships, although he claimed he only did so because nobody would agree to sail with him. On the night of April 14th to 15th, 1912, the most modern and unsinkable ship collided with an iceberg and sunk. And it was incredibly scary. Just imagine a huge cruise ship, several times the size of the Statue of Liberty, crashing into a massive chunk of ice and sinking. It's dark and cold. All you can hear is the rumbling and grinding of breaking metal and wood. All that surrounds you is the icy waters of the endless Atlantic Ocean. There's almost no connection with the outside world. There are no phones or internet. Nobody else on the whole planet knows that the ship is sinking. It's a real nightmare. But the most shocking thing is that the people who were on the Titanic that day didn't panic. They were calm, maybe a little worried, but there was no fear on their faces. To understand why they weren't afraid during one of the biggest disasters of the 20th century, you need to see what was going on through their eyes. So, you're a passenger on the infamous ocean liner. Your cabin is located on one of the top decks of the ship. You've just had a great time with your friends at dinner. Now musicians are playing a beautiful melody. Waiters are serving dessert. You go out onto the deck and enjoy the tranquility of the mighty ocean. At this moment, you feel an incredible sense of security and comfort. You're proud that you're one of the first people in the world to travel on the most high-tech ship on the planet. You go to bed in your cabin and wake up because a crew member gently knocks on your door and asks you to go to the deck. There's some kind of issue, but there's no reason to panic. No problem. You'll be happy to go out and take a look at the night sky. The moment when the ship collided with the iceberg felt like nothing more than a slight push, and some passengers didn't even hear it. 
They realized that something was wrong only when stewards knocked on their doors and asked them to go outside. You're on the deck. There are already a lot of people here. Everyone is more or less calm. Passengers are talking about what might have happened. Listening to the conversations around you, you figure out that the ship is supposedly sinking. <laughs> the idea seems like nonsense to you. But even if it is true, all passengers will be evacuated in lifeboats anyway. At that time, people didn't know there were half as many rescue boats as needed. Passengers were sure that everyone would be saved. Evacuation begins. Women and children go first. No one panics or tries to get into a boat before it's their turn. All men behave gentlemanly and help crew members to evacuate women. One passenger wants to get into the boat with his wife, but it's not because he's afraid to stay on the Titanic. He's just worried. It seems to him that it's less safe in the boat than on the giant liner. He doesn't want to leave his wife alone, but the crew members explain the situation to him, and the man retreats without any resistance. They begin to launch flares into the air. No one pays any attention to this. Everyone thinks this is a standard procedure for a ship breakdown. If there had been many experienced travelers on board, they would have understood the flares were fired because the ship was in distress. Perhaps then, people would have started panicking, but most of the passengers simply didn't notice it. The boats are lowered one by one. People are watching the evacuation, patiently waiting for their turn. There is no pushing or crowding. Nobody is screaming. The actions of the crew help the passengers to remain calm. They deliberately downplay the severity of the situation to prevent panic. Someone says the boats are launched simply as a precaution. Also, the crew members claim that a rescue ship is heading for the Titanic and is just a few miles away. Some passengers say they see the lights of another ship. The people who are already sitting in the boats want to stay closer to the Titanic, since this way they'll feel safer. Many passengers simply don't want to believe that something serious is happening. Even when they're told the ship is sinking, they refuse to admit it. How is it possible that the unsinkable ship can sink? But this is how the human mind works. In extreme situations, it refuses to believe that something bad is going to happen now. You don't even want to think about it. One of the passengers says that it seems to her that the danger is exaggerated. She claims that all people will return to the Titanic at any moment. Some passengers are afraid, and still, they don't want to leave the ship. Warm cabins and the safest ship in the world are here. The alternative is the ice-cold ocean and small, unstable rescue boats. Someone refuses to leave the ship because they can't find their baggage. Some passengers carry all their belongings with them. They don't want to leave them on the sinking ship. There are many immigrants on board, and some of them don't even understand English. The crew members can't explain to them what's happening. These passengers misunderstand stewards' instructions during the evacuation. They can't figure out the inscriptions on the evacuation signs. Many passengers are sure there's been some kind of breakdown in the engine compartment. The problem will be solved soon, and the Titanic will continue its journey. People only start to realize that the ship is going down when it begins tilting forward, and its rear part starts rising above the water. That's when those around you start panicking. Some jump into the water, others climb into the lifeboats without waiting in line. But in general, there's no chaos and hysteria. It was the start of 1912. A giant chunk of ice broke off a glacier in southwest Greenland. The ice was made up of snow that had fallen thousands of years before the event. 
perhaps as far back as when mammoths still roamed the Earth. The iceberg started its journey. It was a huge thing, more than 1,700 feet long and weighing over 75 million tons. It was also a very peaceful chunk of ice. It steered clear of ships and busy transport routes. And then it somehow floated much further south than other bergs did. Our iceberg was lucky. Others melt long before they get to these low latitudes. Out of up to 30,000 icebergs that drift away from Greenland's glaciers, only 1% ever make it all the way to the Atlantic. Even after melting into the water for months, this massive block of ice was still almost twice as heavy as the Golden Gate Bridge. The iceberg's top part was towering 10 stories over the ocean surface. Several days before our iceberg made it to the Atlantic Ocean, a magnificent ship left port. It was a luxury liner, carrying more than 3,000 passengers and crew members. At that time, it was the largest ship ever built. It was the Titanic. The collisions happened on April 14th, when the ship was in the North Atlantic, 370 miles away from Newfoundland. Unable to divert its course, the ship ruptured at least five of its hull compartments. They started to fill with water at an alarming speed. The Titanic's compartments weren't capped at the top. That's why the water spilled over and started to flood each succeeding one. The front of the ship began to sink, causing the back part to lift vertically into the air. And then, with a deafening roar, the liner broke in half. The rest is history. But what happened to the iceberg after that? On April 15th, the German ocean liner SS Prinz Aldebert was sailing through the North Atlantic. It was traveling a few miles away from the place where the Titanic had sunk several hours prior. The German ship's chief steward, who hadn't learned about the disaster yet, saw an iceberg. What drew his attention was a large streak of red paint going along the iceberg's base. Surprised, the man took a photo of his discovery. He thought the paint meant a ship had hit the iceberg within the past 12 hours. The next person who saw the iceberg and took another photo of it was the captain of a vessel laying deep sea telecommunication cables. The ship was sent to help in the area where the Titanic had sunk. The captain later claimed the iceberg he'd seen had been the only one in that area, plus the red paint. It wasn't difficult to connect the dots. In 2015, one of these photos sold at auction for over $32,000. And still, experts are unsure whether the image really shows the infamous block of ice. It might be a simple iceberg that had been floating nearby at that time. The great unsinkable ship was gone, sunken to the bottom of the North Atlantic, where it remains to this day. together for many years. Where you go, I go. These were the words Ida Strauss said to her husband. One of the richest women on the Titanic didn't end up in a lifeboat. Ida chose to stay behind with her beloved Isidore. Moments earlier, she gave her maid a precious gift that probably saved her life. Isidore and Ida Strauss were both born in Germany and emigrated to the United States as kids. They met in New York 
and got married five years later. The couple had seven children, but luckily, none of them were on the Titanic. Isidore worked for his father's shop in his late teens. Then, he started a china and porcelain business with his brother that grew into the glassware department at Macy's. Eventually, the brothers took over the entire department store and became multi-millionaires. Isidore and Ida were well known in New York for their wealth, charity, and their incredible love and devotion to each other. Whenever Isidore went on a business trip around the States or to Europe, his wife would go with him. When she couldn't, they'd write long letters to each other every day. The couple visited their native Germany every now and again, too. In 1912, they escaped the bone-chilling New York winter and headed for Europe. By that time, they'd already been married for 40 years. They mostly spent time in sunny southern France and also stopped by Isidore's hometown. In early April, it was time for them to sail back home to New York. They normally traveled on one of those huge German liners they had back then. This time, though, everyone was talking about the new luxury liner, the RMS Titanic. They couldn't resist it and immediately bought up some sweet first-class tickets. On April 10th, they boarded the newest ship of the White Star Line. <laughs> this was going to be great! Ida and Isidore scored one of the 39 private suites at the top of the ship. The tickets cost around $100,000 in today's money. Some of the richest people in the world were staying next to them. The Strausses spent their evenings dining in front of a live orchestra in a hall filled with fancy furniture and expensive wooden paneling. They played chess and backgammon, visited the gym, the swimming pool, even checked out the on-deck squash courts. The luxury didn't last long, though. On the night of April 14th, the ship had its run-in with the most famous iceberg in history. It felt like a slight tremor, a little rumble, that's it. Nobody realized they were in any kind of danger. Passengers even started throwing snowballs made from the chunks of ice that had fallen on the deck. The ship officers told everyone they'd be fine. Moments later, Captain Edward Smith announced it was time to put those life jackets on and get into the lifeboats. All 20 of them were stored on the upper deck. They could have had more, but the ship's designers thought it would make the deck look too messy. There was actually a lifeboat drill scheduled for that day, but instead, they had the real thing. Pretty much only first-class passengers were going to be getting on those lifeboats. The Strausses left their private suite and waited for instructions from the crew. A lot of them were still confident. They told the passengers not to lose their passes. They'd need them when everyone got back on board. That was never going to happen. The ship was going under. The crew announced that women and children would board first. The Strausses were standing next to lifeboat 8. Mr. Strauss, who was 67 at the time, was offered a seat with his wife because of his age. He refused it, saying he was not too old to sacrifice himself for a woman. He wanted to wait and make sure no women and children were left behind. Ellen Bird, Ida's new maid, hesitated before getting on the lifeboat, but Ida told her to go. There was still room for Ida, and the other first-class women were yelling to her to join them. It took about 10 minutes to load each boat. That's how long Ida had to choose her destiny. She took off her beautiful mink coat and handed it to her shivering maid. Ida said she wouldn't be needing it anymore. 
but the lifeboat wouldn't leave without her. Sailors tried to grab her and force her on the boat. Meanwhile, the Titanic's orchestra was still playing some pretty upbeat music in the background. Crazy. Ida dodged the sailors' hands and stayed on deck. Isidore was begging for her to go. She refused to leave him, no matter what. All the survivors in Lifeboat 8 remembered her final words about true love in the face of tragedy. We've lived together for many years. Where you go, I go. It took a whole hour for the first lifeboat to splash down into the icy water. The last memory of the Titanic for many passengers was Isidore and Ida standing arm in arm on deck. More than 200 first-class passengers survived. Some of them said the Strausses sat down peacefully in two deck chairs, holding hands, just waiting. The 25 passengers on Lifeboat 8 spent the rest of the night rowing to safety. They were chasing what they thought were the lights of a ship. It turned out the rescue boat showed up from the opposite direction. They were lucky to be found at all. Many of the passengers, including Ellen Bird, shared the story of Ida and Isidore with reporters, saying it was their most important memory from that horrible night. A month later, around 30,000 people went to their memorial service. Even the mayor of New York showed up. No one seemed surprised the couple gave up their lives for others. Ellen Bird tried to give the famous mink coat back to the Strauss family, but they asked her to keep it in memory of Ida. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side.